Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. Now, if you'll turn with me, I want you to find your way to the first chapter of the first book of our Bible, Genesis chapter 1. On your way there, I will say yes. Yes, this series is about how to be human. It's a little bit like the little girl who went to her mother and said, where did humankind come from? And the mother said, oh, well, sweetie, that's, that's simple. A long time ago, God created Adam and Eve, and they had babies, and those babies had babies, and those babies had babies, and eventually then the humankind, the race, was, was developed. And, 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 then, and then you and me, we're here because of, of them. And the little girl said, oh, okay, great. She went and not satisfied, she found her father and said, God, uh, said to her father, uh, Daddy, uh, where did humankind come from? And, of course, her dad said, oh, that's simple, sweetie. See, millions and millions of years ago, there were these monkeys, and eventually we all evolved from them, and here we are. And then the little girl, not satisfied and confused now, went back to her dad and, or back to her mom and said, Mom, I don't understand. You, you said that a long time ago God created Adam and Eve and lots of babies had babies and, and here we are. But God, Daddy says that, that we're, we're from, from monkeys. And, of course, the mother said, Oh, well, baby, that's simple. I was telling you about my side of the family. <laughs> See, this is Dad's side of the family. All right. Okay. Okay, I see you clapping. All right. Listen, we want to offer a word of prayer after that bad joke and turn our attention to the Word of God. God, we stop for just a moment to acknowledge that we really do need help in knowing how to be human. So we turn our attention to the sacred scriptures and we turn our hearts to you and we pray that you would guide us this day in such a way that so transforms us that we are never the same again we welcome you now to do in and among us what only you can in christ's name we pray amen When God thought you into being, God thought it was a good idea. When God imaged you forth into the world, God believed with all of God's heart that it was a good idea, and here is the best news. He still does. Despite where you've been or what you have seen or done, despite whatever brokenness you carry around with you heavy in your chest, God still thinks you're a good idea. 
no matter how you may be under the impression that you have marred, broken, ruined whatever story that you had hoped you might be living by now, God believes that you are still a good idea. And we get that idea from the first chapter of the first book of the Bible because we're told that in the creation of all things, there is this sequencing, these, these acts, these ordered acts of creation in which after each step in the created order, God approves of what God has done. God creates light and says, that's good. God separates some waters from above from the waters below and says, that's good. God then separates some dry ground from wet ground and steps back to say, that's good. God then creates green things, trees and vegetation for fruit and vegetables. And everywhere God looks, God says, that's, that's good. That's really good. And then he creates the luminaries and hangs them in the sky. The sun to rule by day and the the moon and stars to rule the night. And he says, that's good. Then he creates all kinds of interesting beings. He creates birds to fly in the air and fish to swim in the sea. And he creates creatures that crawl and roam and slither upon the surface of the ground. And he says, that's good. But then the whole drama takes a turn when we pick up in chapter 1, verse 27, with these words. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals on the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was, you say these last two words with me, very good. Six expressions of divine approval over everything that had been made thus far. Light, good. Water, good. Green stuff, good. Luminaries, good. Creatures that fly and swim and crawl and slither, good, 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 good. But it's not until the human ones 
enter onto the divine drama of the cosmos that God reserves God's very best compliment to the end. Now it's very good. It can be said that the creation of human beings was the crowning achievement of all creation. Very good. When God created you, God thought it was a good idea. And the trouble is we sometimes overlook how good our beginning was. You and I have been created in the image and likeness of God. What does that even mean? I mean, sometimes there are verses of Scripture that we blow right by and we hear them so often that we fail to to feel the gravity, the weight of the, the truth in those verses. To be created in the image of God. Well, from, from what stuff were we created? See, we like to think about God as a trinity. We use Trinitarian language. We sang about it a moment ago, didn't we? We think of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And, and although there are so many ways to try to describe the mystery of the Trinity as we understand it, one of the simplest ways may be to think of it as this, that God existed in this divine communion with God's own self. That in the Godhead itself there was this sharing and generosity and mutual submission and love and maybe the best way to describe the stuff from which we came, the image of the God in whose image you have been born, is to borrow an image from our Greek sisters and brothers in the Eastern Orthodox faith. They believe that the best way to understand the very nature of God in Trinity was to think of it as a kind of dance. The word is perichoresis. We've talked about that before perichoresis from two words peri meaning around and choresis from choreography like a like a round dance not a square dance but a round dance in which there is mutual movement it's found in some images the movement in which there is sharing and mutual submission and love and generosity and care and joy and laughter and play these are the images that we think of when we think of God existing before all things. But the beauty of the mystery of the perichoresis is this. While we think of God existing in this beautiful kind of circle dance within God's own being, a perfect infusion of divinity with divinity where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father in this endless dance, the beauty of the image of the perichoresis is that there is one other hand extended from the dance, reaching out to each of us, asking us to join the dance. When we are created in the image of God, we are created from the stuff of that divine dance with the capacity to experience the same kind of divine love and sharing and community and justice and, and mutual care that exists within the Godhead. In fact, the word that is used in the text we read a moment ago for, for image, in Hebrew, the word is setlem, and it means image of a, a statue, a concrete kind of structure or sculpture. Think of it this way. In an empire, an emperor would at times place 
statues of himself all throughout the empire in the different vassal states where he could not be so that in those outer realms of the empire, everyone in that empire knew that he was closer than they thought, that his presence, and if need be, his action was just within reach. And the Hebrew poets use this idea to describe what it means to be created in God's own image. You and I are to image forth the very presence and action of God in the world. It's really a spectacular, profound image when you think the the reality that Hebrew theology forbids making graven images, right? They're forbidden. It's against one of the Ten Commandments to create a graven image of God. The only place where God's image can be engraved is upon human beings. You are created in the image of God in order to image forth into the world the character, the essence, the presence, and the action of God. I don't know that we sit with that truth long enough to really let it seep into the soil of the soul. Do you know the divine is in you? Are you aware, yes, of your humanness because that faces us in the mirror when we shave our face or brush our teeth every morning. We are fully aware of our humanness. Are you aware that God's own DNA is encoded in you, which means you are born with intrinsic worth and value that you didn't earn and the world cannot diminish or take it away. You're created in the image of God. When God imaged you forth, God thought it was a good idea. There is this verse in the New Testament in 2 Timothy that shares the the mystery of what I'm talking about, and I just want to give this to you as a gift. Let Let it meet you somewhere deep right about in here. Listen to these words. By God's divine purpose or power, by God's divine power, God has given us all the things we need for life and for true devotion that allow us to know God who has called us by God's own glory and goodness. In this gift, now hang on to these words, God has given us a guarantee of something very great and wonderful. Through this gift, you are sharers in the divine nature itself. You are sharers in the divine nature itself. If you hear something like that and you recognize, well, he's talking about somebody else but not me, then you're not alone. I mean, when you hear words like that, it's too good to be true that you and I, with all of our trouble, our sharers in the divine nature? What does that even mean? We marvel like the psalmist marvels in chapter 8 of the book of Psalms. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what, what are human beings? That you're even mindful of them. What, what are mortals that you care for them? Yet, 
you have made them just a little lower than God and have crowned them with glory and honor. Beloved, as we begin a new series these many weeks about what it means to be human, how to be human beings, we begin with a foundational belief that according to sacred scripture, the Bible has a pretty high regard for God's very good idea in making you. That's where we begin. The trouble is, <laughs> we don't always act like it. Yeah. The trouble is, take one look around the world in like five seconds. You can see that while we are created in this glorious image of God and while there is divine DNA racing, just coursing through us, we don't always act like it. That's why I think it's important to remember what the entire verse says. Verse 26 says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. We're not just created in God's image, but we're also created in God's likeness. And there is a difference between the image and the likeness. The image that is in you is the same image of God that is in every mortal on the planet, regardless of how they behave, where they're from, what they sound like, or what they look like. In every mortal is the image of God. They didn't put it there, and they can't take it away. But the likeness is something different. See, likeness, the Hebrew word for likeness in that same text is demuth. And demuth means in a similar way or to behave or live or take action in a similar fashion. You and I are created not only to image forth the character of God in all the world, but we are created with the capacity to act like it. To act, live, order our life in a similar way to God. We're created to live God-like. The reason I believe this with my whole heart is because just after he creates humankind, we hear him tell the humans to do some God-like things. Go be fruitful and multiply. That's a God-like activity. God creates out of God's own beauty and community and love all things and then tells those creatures to go and do the same, to act like God and create more. He also says, now go and subdue the earth. Have dominion over it, not domination where you destroy it, but dominion where, like a good king, has royal responsibility for its care. Go and be like God in the world. Care for one another and for the earth. So you and I are created with the capacity to not only image God into the world, but to live the likeness in such a way that we behave in the world the way God behaves. The trouble is, we don't. Hardly ever Act in such a way where people's first thought is, well, that's a God-like behavior. And when we fail at living up to and into our original design to be God-like in the world, in the image and likeness of him, well, there's a word for it. We call it sin. 
Sin is the word that we use to describe those choices that we make that make us live in the world in a way that is contrary to the way we were designed to live. And we misunderstand sin a lot of times. We think to ourselves, well, we're going to sin just because we're human. And that's kind of in our nature. We're just humans sin, and so I'm just going to sin because that's a human thing to do. When there may be another way to think about this, we don't sin because that's just in us. Sin dehumanizes us. We are designed with glorious worth and value and enterprise and autonomy and the capacity to literally live in the world as if God had hoped we might live in the world. But when we sin, it's not simply the result of us just being human, because don't forget, sin did not enter into our story until chapter 3. And all this, this Augustinian doctrine of original sin didn't begin until later. We began with original goodness. We began with original blessing. And sin is the thing that dehumanizes us from what we are intended to be. And if there has ever been a season when we have lived in a dehumanizing era, it has been lately, amen? We live in a dehumanizing world. In the last two years, there has been a dehumanizing season that we've all been trying to, to swim, navigate, dog paddle our way out of. It is a dehumanizing thing to have to separate from each other, to mask ourselves. And I affirm it, wear the masks, distance where we can, because we must do that to remain safe. But don't you also feel that there's something dehumanizing when you can't be around the deathbed of a loved one in the hospital, or you can't have a funeral in such a way where you naturally, in a humanly way, embrace those who are grieving and hurting, there is a, there's a way to go through life in which seasons make it feel as if you are being dehumanized, but it's worse than that. Even during this last two years, while we have naturally had to make choices that feel a little dehumanizing for a while, in the midst of it, the separation has even gotten deeper. And the divisions between us, ideologically and politically and racially, the tension between us has caused deeper chasms of separation to where at the end of the day we so vilify the other and lob like verbal hand grenades about the others in such a way that it, doesn't it leave you at times just disappointed in us? Disappointed in, 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 in this, this very good idea that God had with creating us? At times we just, I find myself in partnership with Job who says, why do human beings have such a hard service on the earth? Are, are we not like, a, like the days of a laborer where we struggle, where we suffer? I find myself lockstep at times with the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes who says, you know what, I'm done, fed up. It's all vanity. Vanity, vanity. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness. It's all meaningless. Or sometimes do you ever feel like James, who says, what is your life? You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. Your life is like this, this, this vapor that's here today and like a mist is gone tomorrow. And 
Aren't there seasons when it can feel as if this glorious image that we've been describing, this glorious experience called the human being, can feel so disappointing? And the thing didn't happen, and the promise was broken, and the relationships were splintered, and the storyline was disrupted. What do you do when you're disappointed in humankind? What, What do you do when, worse than disappointment, you are disillusioned by the humanity of others because you see what they are capable of? What do you do when you are disillusioned with your own humanity because you have learned what you are capable of? And my Lord, have mercy. What do you do if ever you come to a moment when you're disillusioned with the God who thought this whole thing was a good idea? Do this. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon the Christ of God because the entire purpose of God taking on flesh and bone and living among us was not to somehow bypass the earthy, gritty, grimy, textured experience of the human journey in order to save us, but to rather immerse himself within it, to feel the textures of disappointment and disillusionment, to come into the sea, as Ken Geyer calls it, to step into the warm lake of humanity himself in order to feel all of the disappointing worst parts of the human journey in order to redeem it. And in redeeming it, we see in the face of Jesus what God intended from the very beginning. Of all of the spectacular ways to describe why it is that Christ came the way Christ came, maybe the simplest is this. Christ came to show us what God had in mind from the very beginning. That's it. And to redeem every broken version of what we've been attempting to live all along. You know, we have all kinds of great names for Jesus. We call him big regal names like Savior and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we have majestic names that, that are fitting to him. And he, des- he deserves every one of them. But do you know what his favorite title was for himself? The one he used more about himself than any other title was Son of Man. It's a confusing title, really. It's an obscure verse from the book of Daniel in which he lifts it up and applies it to himself. It means the representation of all humankind. It means the son of all humanity, or my favorite way to paraphrase it, the truly human one. The thing that was happening in Jesus was a demonstration of what it actually looks like to be created in the image and likeness of God because Jesus was not only created in the image of God, but he lived the likeness so that we might see what it like, looks like to live as God intended. The Son of Man. In him was this perfect fusion of humanity and divinity all at once. 
I love what the end of the hymn in the first chapter of Colossians says about our Lord. In him was the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Isn't that beautiful? In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is why in some places in the New Testament he's also referred to as the last Adam. The last Adam. Because in him he was the firstborn of a brand new humanity. In him we see what it looks like to be human to the fullest extent. And sometimes we, we confuse this. Sometimes we, we miss the point entirely. I mean, we, are, we do well at lifting up his divinity. We believe in his divinity. And the whole son of God title is fitting, and we embrace that. We believe he's the son of God. Yes, we have a hard time embracing his humanity. But it's in his humanity that he demonstrates to us how we are to live how we are to love. There's this great story. Jesus is about to be arrested. It's the night before he is arrested and taken away. He's with his disciples, and you can read about it in the 14th chapter of John. It's a very intimate time together. And, and he says, you know, where I'm going, you can't go with me now. You, I'm going to be away for a while, but I won't leave you orphaned. You'll be taken care of. And they were anxious, and one of them, Thomas, very naturally says, whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. That's not a direct quote, but you know. He's like, <laughs> he's like, but how do we know the way? How do we know the way? And, and Jesus, familiarly, you, you know this response, in verse six says, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. But I want us to back up for a moment and look at that verse because most of the time when we in the evangelical side of the world look at that verse, we think of it as somehow Jesus making some commentary about all the other world religions. Like, there, like there's one religion better than other religions and Jesus has nothing, no interest at all in talking about religion and which one's best and which one's worst. And instead, the context of this verse is that Thomas says, but how do we know? We don't know the way. And Jesus says, Thomas, have you not been with me for the last three years? Did you see the way that I paid attention to the people who were forgotten? Did you see the way when we were with people, the lives were changed? Did you see the way that we loved unconditionally and that unconditional love changed their relationships? Did you see the way when we saw hungry people and gave them food, how they were filled in more ways than just the belly? Did you see the way that we were able to make peace? Did you see me? Did you, did you see me reconcile relationships of fragmented families and, and, and fragmented people? Did you see the way, the way that we lifted people from the gutter of despair and reminded them of their God-given intrinsic dignity and value and worth? Did you see the way where when they thought they were far away from God, we reminded them that they were closer to the kingdom that they thought? I am the way. And that's the truth about life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I sometimes like to say, the Jesus way is the truth about life. What life? The human life. 
that we, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, will see what it was intended to be from the very beginning. In fact, do you know what, what happened in Jesus? It's supposed to happen in you and in me. Everything that we celebrate about Christ is intended to happen in any who yield themselves to him. The fusion of humanity and divinity. The marriage of human and God within us. This is why we say things like, in you is Christ, the hope of glory. In you, if you become aware of the image that is in you and learn to live in the likeness as Jesus did, there is something that gets transformed in your mind, and suddenly you are not only not disappointed in the human journey, you begin to see the earthy, gritty, messy, chaotic existence that you call your human life. You see it not something to despise, but you see it as God's preferred home. In you. Do, you. do you know what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians? He says, do you not know? You are God's temple. And God's own spirit dwells in you. I love what the early church father Athanasius said about Christ and his coming. He said, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. That when we yield to Christ, all that is ugly and full of dehumanizing sin and rebellion, all of it gets redeemed in such a way that all that remains is the treasure in the clay jar. This is why Jesus talked about the kingdom the way he did, as like this big surprise that we never knew how close God actually was. It's like a treasure in clay jars. It's like the Christ that is in you, the hope of glory. It's like a, like a, like a I don't know, a treasure hidden in a field that you discover, and then you go sell everything you have to buy the field. It's like a pearl of great price, so valuable that you're willing to travel the world over to receive it. This is the good news, beloved. The kingdom of God, the presence of our Lord, is not something we simply wait on until we die in some afterlife. It begins now. And the great surprise is that those of us who yield ourselves to the one who was the perfect fusion of God and man, the one who was so willing to repair the breach that he was willing to die on the cross so that the crucifixion would kill every dehumanizing choice we could ever make. That upon the cross, what gets crucified is every dehumanizing sin that could keep us from being aware of how deeply loved we are by God. And what gets raised to new life in his resurrection is a brand new humanity in which you and I not only are aware that we're born in his image, but we find the courage now with resurrection bodies to live the likeness every day until it changes how we see each other and changes how we see ourselves and changes how we see God.